Welcome to Politics and Pints, the show that is exactly what it sounds like. I'm Daily Texan Forum editor Jordan Shenhar. And I'm editor-in-chief Alexander Chase. This week we're talking about media bias. And it's a good day to do that because as we sit here recording on Friday afternoon, just earlier today, Donald Trump um, essentially, in the words of CNN anchor Jake Tapper, rickrolled the network as well as Fox News into airing an infomercial for the Trump Hotel. He, he teased a, a press conference and then led the networks on a tour through the hotel's facilities before speaking for on the uh, announced subject for approximately 14 seconds. Really a spectacular show if you are one who believes that uh, us and the quote-unquote feckless media can be so easily uh, swayed. Um, our good friend and columnist uh, Noah M. Horowitz loves to refer to us as feckless. You know, in this moment, you know, it's very easy to trash the media for uh, affecting the election one way or the other. Are we so easily swayed? Is this a problem? Well, it's funny because if you if you listen to, to Mr. Trump uh, talk about the failing New York Times covering his campaign, he alleges that there's uh, a strong presence of media bias against him and against the Republican Party and the Republican platform, and a number of prominent conservatives, even those who aren't inclined to agree with him on every issue, seem to support that sentiment. Uh, they say the mainstream media, or as Sarah Palin likes to call it, the lamestream media, needs to do a better job focusing on scandals in the Democratic Party. You know, Donald Trump Jr. did say just the other day, implications unknown, that the media would be, quote, firing up the gas chambers if Trump lied like Clinton. And uh, we'll, we'll let PolitiFact and people who have any understanding of what gas chambers might be talk about that later. But, but, but that does kind of get into a criticism that a lot of nonpartisan uh, election observers have leveled at the media, which is that they're not doing a good enough job covering the proportionality of just, just how abnormal the Trump campaign is. Nate Silver uh, had an interesting tweet storm this week on that subject saying that um, whereas Trump is probably something like 10 times as bad of a candidate as Hillary Clinton, he's being covered as if he's only twice as bad. And that lack of proportionality has a pretty big impact on how the public perceives some of Trump's scandals relative to uh, some of Clinton's. And to think that the failing New York Times lost Nate Silver. Sad, isn't it? It really is. Um, so, you know, actual how bad he is versus her or how sketchy he is versus her comparisons aside, um, you know, trying to get that onto a number isn't necessarily the point here. Um, you know, the the glaring difference between like the the New York Times covering the event this morning and the Washington Post covering the event this morning is uh, probably what really is the big topic for today. Um, this morning, the New York Times announced at the end of his press conference that he had said that Obama was born in the United States, um, whereas the Post reported a little bit differently that he had flopped from his earlier statements that he wasn't and lied about Hillary Clinton starting all of the birther scandals. Um, is either of those the right way to go about this? Is an entire absence of context the right way? Is inserting all of the relevant context and making judgments of truth in a news article the right way? I, I think it's the... I, I fall more on Nate Silver's side of this debate. I, I think it's the, the media's job to um, 
provide enough relevant context for people to understand the story. And although that's the, you can see that kind of being used to um, manipulate a, a story um, in a way that aligns with the reporter's, I guess, political orientation to begin with. But at the same time, that's also in these kinds of these long ongoing stories, like Trump's birther controversy began, I think, in 2011. That really is the best way to cover them, explain how we got to this point in time and everything that led up to that. And also, if you're supposed to be telling the truth, don't be afraid to call somebody on a lie. I suppose that's reasonable. Um, insofar as you're making the fact-checking and the context of telling the story the important thing there. What I worry about in this day and age, though, is that with a lot of sites functioning in a, a manner that allows them to kind of editorialize first and tell the news later... Um, I know that during the Democratic primary, U.S. Uncut got a lot of traffic, and they're technically not a, a news site, so it's just a political organization. Um, I worry that, as a Washington Post does do a good job in potentially uncovering, you know, factual discrepancies, that opens the door for a lot more people to buy into the viability of somewhere more along the lines of a Breitbart or and the exact opposite way, a Daily Coast or a... I mean, Slate does a good job occasionally of identifying these stories, but they are, again, falling down that line of editorializing as they tell their news. And I worry that, you know, once the Washington Post allows it, people will all tend towards those who are going to say what they want a little bit louder rather than in terms of the opinions rather than just providing relevant context that allows people to form their own opinion on clear-cut subjects. I mean, that's a really good point. You you don't want to see the editorial department and news department converging in a media organization. That's why the Texan goes to such lengths to keep people like us separate from the people who go out and get the scoops and uh, report the news. But part of what's fueled the rise of sites like U.S. Uncut on the left and Breitbart on the right is the perception that media organizations are biased in blending their opinions with factual reporting to begin with, right? In the... Um, if you go back to 2012, there was a lot of criticism from conservatives that Mitt Romney was being covered unfairly. And there was actually, there was a week during the campaign where uh, something that could have been considered a small gaffe by a, a low-level foreign policy advisor who told the reporter not to ask questions at a silent war memorial in Poland, uh, somewhat impolitely, I think he told the reporter to shove it, that wound up being front-page news for about a week at a lot of the biggest news organizations in the country. And people were wondering, well, why is there not similar coverage of uh, impolite statements by Democratic advisors? And that, I think, helped drive a lot of people towards more conspiratorial and more explicitly partisan sources of news. I mean, reasonable. Um, you know, being in high school at the time, hearing the binders full of women remarks were... You know, some of the only real remarks that I can remember, I remember a Romney trip to Europe and seeing the word gaff on a New York Times headline in a Starbucks, but I don't particularly remember other than a few odds and ends from those campaigns. And yet this campaign season seems likely to leave us with plenty of fond and less than fond memories of coverage moments. Um, it seems that Matt Lauer's interviews very recently of both Hillary and Trump seem likely to be one of those moments. Um I, yeah, that was not a great moment for the network or for Matt Lauer. You know, 
there's been enough think pieces turned out about whether or not that was the right thing or not to do, um, seeming to interrupt Hillary more often than he was interrupting the Donald and letting him just speak on. And well, he also he didn't co- take him to task for any of the things that were explicitly untrue in that interview. When Trump said that he opposed the Iraq war, he wasn't pushed on it at all, even though that's been debunked numerous times. So that seems to be like a pretty clear line. If you're interviewing someone rather than just writing a story on them, you should push them on the factual nature of their claims. Right. Um, I think one of the best organizations that, um, did, or one of the organizations that did this the best recently is Cosmo magazine in their interview of Ivanka Trump the other day, um, where they took her to task for some of the, her, the previous statements of her father about women in the workplace, about maternity leave, and asked her how she can reconcile her support for, um, for I guess, the, the lean-in model of working women and the candidate who she supports. I mean, it's so interesting now that so many organizations that previously haven't dipped their toes into these sorts of things are kind of having to. Um, being a woman is somehow now a political issue. Um, I guess some na- somehow is not exactly the right way to say that insofar as uh, when Canada has made it clear that she believes uh, women's rights are human's rights and has made that clear for years, whereas the other candidates... Uh, finds all sorts of ways to use uh, women's uh, gender and sexuality against them in uh, moments during debates and interactions. Right. Well, get, getting back to your Matt Lauer point for a second, do, do you think there's uh, a difference in the way that print media is covering this campaign versus cable news or network news? So I think the essential difference between both of them, not just during this campaign but elsewhere, is that if you're a print media site or site or a physical print sorry if you're a print media publication or a, a digital site that has a large print route you know so many of these organizations have been built out of the idea of serving their communities in one way or another and how that reputation's changed isn't so much the importance here you know the idea is you read the new york times to find out what's going on you go to it i mean they sell it to you but cable news kind of seems to function in a bit different way um in my interactions with professionals in different industries, you know, those who work in TV news and as segment producers often have a little bit more of a cutthroat nature about them. And so providing the juicy, interesting story is necessary. I mean, if you want to compare CNN and New York Times, for example, on the disappearance of Malaysian Flight 370, New York Times reported on stuff as it was important. CNN reported on stuff because it kept the viewers on TV. And uh, bringing on conspiracy theorists to talk about black holes taking the plane somewhere was part of that equation, apparently. Um, Trump's really entertaining. Regardless of your political preferences, the dude knows what he's doing on TV. Um, The Apprentice stayed on the air for more than one season for good reason. Um, And he's using a lot of those skills, which are not necessarily political, to keep himself in this race. Um, I think it's just part of the TV formula that can kind of get used against itself in these circumstances. Whereas print publications aren't going to keep another reader there by printing yet another Trump story in the same way. So I think that just insofar as their models are different, the way that they're going to cover things is different. And I mean, it's, it's hard to think about it, but you know, 
these publications and ours all require some funding to go on and that's just going to produce some things in terms of coverage differences we haven't really seen this too much before tv's getting bigger prints also facing some long-term challenges and finally there's a candidate who's really making it really clear to us that's a good point, and uh, I also wonder how much of that has to do with the kind of inherently uh, either conversational or confrontational aspect of television as opposed to print. If you're writing an article about somebody or about their prepared remarks, then it's easier to kind of go through, through gather your thoughts and write them out, uh, as opposed to when you're live and you're confronted with an opinion that or a, a statement that you know, that's objectionable or untrue. It can be kind of harder off the top of your head when you don't have access to the same kinds of resources that you do when you're writing a story to go in and say, that's wrong, this is why, here are the actual facts. Matt Lauer should probably have been better prepared to call Trump on on some of his statements, but it's easy to see how in that kind of conversation you wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. But I also believe that that excuse, that's what I believe I'm going to tend towards calling that, makes a lot more sense um, last June, last July, than it does now. This campaign's drug on long enough that I personally wouldn't excuse an interviewer or a moderator in a debate for not calling out a lie when we've been discussing these events for well long enough now that, you know, the fact checks have probably been beaten to death themselves. But that's not a reason for a reporter of any repute to ignore them. Uh, that's a fair point, and uh, the, the onus on that interview falls squarely on the shoulders of Matt Lauer for not being prepared with the follow-up questions he should have been. But I think for, if you look at it more from an organizational perspective, uh, what the how the cable news providers are operating as opposed to the print publications, uh, there are just some ethical concerns that they just don't take quite as seriously. For instance, CNN is currently employing Corey Lewandowski as a campaign correspondent, and Lewandowski was the former um, campaign manager for Donald Trump, is still on the Trump campaign's payroll, and CNN has never disclosed this on the air. I mean, those of us who follow Lewandowski probably know this, but I'm not so worried about those viewers um, that are themselves able of digging up those facts. Um, that said, um, I think the point you're making there is it's more likely that a lower moment's going to happen on TV than in print, right? Right. Cool. Speaking of print now, um, sort of pivoting a little bit, do you think that the endorsement game is going to make much of a difference? And you can see there some of the um, electoral models take it into account. Uh, in the primaries, 538 had their endorsement primary. <laughs> um, and... Now you're kind of you're starting to see a lot of publications that have historically always endorsed Republicans, uh, either breaking for Hillary Clinton, like the Dallas Morning News and the Houston Chronicle, or towards Libertarian candidate Gary Johnson, um, like the Richmond Times Dispatch. In this past week, the Manchester Union Leader, which is the largest newspaper in the swing state of New Hampshire. Well, I think we should back up and say that it's very important that any readers of these paper understand the difference between the Dallas Morning News news department and their opinion section, their editorial department. Um, the Dallas Morning News news reporters are not historically conservative in the same sense, um, and uh, certainly not in the past 10, 15 years. Um, it's to say their opinion page has taken into account their readers and known that based off of their preferences and their wants, they'd want a conservative candidate. Um, that said, some members of 
Okay. That's had some employees of theirs that said that readers had been calling in droves to cancel their, quote, prescriptions of the Dallas Morning News. Um, you know, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News are out of a matter of, like, providing commentary going to look like they're biased or not. Insofar as these print organizations are separating out their two coverages, you know, we get a different result. But, you know, people don't understand that difference. That can convince them that one thing's happening when it's not. Um, I think it was the responsible thing for the Dallas Morning News and the Houston Chronicle to endorse as they did out of a sense that what they saw in their readers is people who needed certain things. Texas is affected by NAFTA, uh, has a high immigrant population. It has people with a sense of morality. I believe that as they saw it and the values of their readers, they did the right thing. And I think that's what matters here is they believe that there's a sense of community service in what they're doing. Yeah, I I think so. I I just hope that it has the effect that they intended. And I'm not sure if, like you said, I'm not sure if uh, any print organization does a good enough job publicizing just how distinct the editorial departments are from the, from the news departments. And it could be easy for opponents of the Dallas Morning News editorial, for instance, to just paint the newspaper as part of the, the lamestream media because they've had some coverage of Trump that's been critical in the past from the news department and then just lump in their editorial without, with that and not see just how historic and kind of groundbreaking it is to see them not endorse a Republican for the first time since, what, the 1940s? Yes, yes, uh, 1940. Um, you know, there's that risk. I think that most Dallas Morning News readers who are likely to read their endorsements are unlikely to change their vote one way or another. That's just the nature of endorsements. That said, there are probably a few who do trust their paper. You know, a lot of people will trust their paper's endorsements to help them figure out how to vote if they're not voting straight ticket or if they're trying to figure out how to vote in foreign primaries. So I'm hoping that there's a little bit of capital in there and that capital doesn't get eaten away by this in terms of trust. For sure. And speaking of people who are unwilling to change their vote, last week we concluded our show with a brief discussion of Jill Stein, and she rewarded our faith with a statement just a couple hours after we finished recording, uh, calling into question the veracity of the uh, go- uh, the government's 9-11 commission. So, oh, yes. So d- to wrap up today, um, our Jill Stein quote of the week or tweet of the week uh, is her saying that the two-party system is only one party away from a one-party totalitarian state, which is why we should have open debates. Well, Jill Stein and Gary Johnson both missed the debate this week, and I think we'll miss them to an extent. They've really been a joy to watch this election year. Um, That said, um, I am myself one leg away from having only one leg, and um, this podcast is one person away from having only one host. But those sorts of comparisons don't really mean a whole lot. No, and neither does Jill Stein's campaign, fortunately. Although it is unfortunate that we're not going to get to see uh, Chris Wallace or Anderson Cooper ask her the question on everyone's minds, which is, does Wi-Fi really fry your brain? You know, after this election cycle, I'm just a little bit more willing to look into that than I would previously. So am I. Thanks for tuning in. As always, keep an eye out for those wonderful conspiracy theories and nutjob reports of media bias, especially on our part. And join us next week where we'll be talking about something maybe slightly more serious.
This podcast was produced by The Daily Texan and hosted by Alexander Chase and Jordan Shenhar. And the music was by Randy Waxler. Be sure to check back next week for our next episode. And for more news, go to dailytexanonline.com.